Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, listeners, just a quick announcement. There's still time to participate in our food addiction research clinical study. We'll get started with treatment groups in June 2022, and we'll begin screening shortly. The program is 10 weeks plus 24 months of follow-up for $100. US If you're interested in being screened or learning more, please fill out a contact form. Details are in the show notes. Not sure if you want to join or if this group is for you? Be sure to listen to episodes 64 and 72 to hear from some past participants. Okay, today's guest is Dr. William Davis. Dr. William Davis is a Milwaukee-based American cardiologist, low-carbohydrate diet advocate, and author of health books known for his stance against modern wheat, which he labels as, quote, a perfect chronic poison. The driving theme in all of Dr. Williams Davis's books is self-empowerment, providing readers with powerful tools that cut through the misinterpretations, misconceptions, misleading marketing, and bad science that passes as nutritional and health information. In this episode, Dr. Vera Tarman and myself get to talk to Dr. Davis about his personal and professional journey, the toxicity of wheat, addiction and wheat, oxytocin deficiency, probiotics, vitamins, and minerals, Dr. Davis's latest book, Undoctored, surgery and medications, how we need to feed our bioflora, the pushback he's received, and more. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshop. Today, we are talking to Dr. William Davis. Dr. William Davis is a Milwaukee-based American cardiologist who overturned the food industry in 2011 with this bold declaration that grains are not the health foods that we were led to believe, but in fact were health destroyers. He is author of a number of books, his most notable being Wheat Belly, Lose the Wheat, Lose the Weight, and Find Your Path Back to Health, along with its sister publications, Wheat Belly Cookbook and the 10-Day Grain Detox. He also wrote Undoctored, What Healthcare Has Failed You, or How Healthcare Has Failed You, and How You Can Become Smarter Than Your Doctor. And his most recent book is Super Gut, Reprogram Your Microbiome and Restore Your Health, Lose Weight and Curb Back the Clock. All of these books have attempted to challenge our current beliefs and practices of what constitutes good health and puts the onus of change and responsibility into the hands of the patient. So, hello, Dr. Davis. Hello, Vera. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you. I'm really thrilled to be able to speak with you because back in 2011, when your book Wheat Belly came out, I knew that sugar was a problem, but the thought that grains and that wheat were a problem, like, and for those of you who just want to be clarified, that means bagels, bread, cereal, that that was actually just a bigger problem was a real shock to me. So before we get into the details of that, Dr. Davis, can you tell us how you stumbled upon this truth? Because it was not a truth at that time. It was heresy in, the, in those <laughs> days. So how did you as a cardiologist get into that whole, uh, how did you stumble into that? And that's the right word too. I did. I stumbled into it. I didn't do this on purpose, but I, I was worried that 
we don't have a good way to identify people at risk for heart disease. That is, we use ridiculous things like cholesterol testing, which should have been discarded decades ago. But this all came to a head when my mom died of sudden cardiac death about four months after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. And, but that's what I did day to day. My mom was living in New Jersey. I just moved to Wisconsin to set up new technologies here, eczema laser, stents, atherectomies, all those kinds of things. And here my mom dies the disease I was managing every day. It was an illustration just how inadequate a procedure is for managing heart disease. People die before they get to the hospital. And so the only technology then, remains true today, is a CT heart scan to generate something called a coronary calcium score. Because calcium occupies 20% of total atherosclerotic plaque volume, it's an index, it's a dipstick for total atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries. Well, I, I set up the scan in, in Wisconsin, with one of the first in the Midwest, one of the first in the country. We're scanning people left and right, and lo and behold, heart disease is everywhere. Well, back then, if, so if your score was, let's say, 500, normal is zero. If you did nothing, the score goes up 25% per year. And with each leap ahead, you're close to dying, heart attack, developing symptoms that you get bypass or stents or whatever. Well, back then, we helped publish these data. If you go on what my colleagues to this day still call optimal medical therapy, baby aspirin, high-dose statin cholesterol drug, a low-fat diet, an exercise program, sometimes other things like beta blockers, how fast does that score increase? 25% per year has zero impact on that measure. Well, what do I do with thousands of people freaking out at me because their scores are going up, going up, going up? Well, of course, some of my colleagues did unscrupulous things like, uh-oh, you're a walking time bomb. You need a real procedure like a heart capitalization and preventive stents or bypass, which, of course, is just plain wrong. There's no benefit to doing those kinds of things in people who don't have symptoms. And so how do you put a stop to this? Well, it took some zigzagging trial and error but it led to some very important lessons, like the addition of vitamin D. It was the first time I saw coronary calcium scores plummet, not stop just going up, but actually drop dramatically. I also rejected this idea that cholesterol reduction, cholesterol testing was helpful. It's not. And so we did advanced lipoproteins, the actual particles in the bloodstream that cause heart disease. I used a, a method called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. It's been around for years, been doing it for 25 years. And you'll see that people with coronary disease, almost without fail, have an excess of small LDL particles, not LDL cholesterol, that indirect measure, but the direct measurement of LDL particles. So I asked, well, what causes small LDL? Well, the science was clear even 20 years ago that it's wheat, grains, and sugars, period. <laughs> they cause small LDL. So I asked people, let's give it a try. You have a heart scan score of 1,200. You know, you're at 15% likely this year of dying. So let's get rid of that small LDL. They did it. Small LDL dropped from very high numbers, like 2,000 to zero nanomoles per liter particle count per volume. But they said this to me. They come back a few months later and say, you didn't tell me I'd lose 58 pounds. Uh -huh. You didn't tell me my blood sugar dropped so much I'd have to stop insulin and my diabetes drugs. You didn't tell me that my ulcerative colitis would go away. <laughs> you didn't tell me that my rheumatoid arthritis would get so much better I stopped the biologic, saved me $4,000 a month in copay. I'm off the prednisone. And in other words, it led to this revelation that this thing that virtually all dietary guidelines and dietitians tell us to pack our diet full of grains was such a destruct. But I didn't know that until I took it out and then saw what happened.
Right. Yeah. So it really was a stumble. So that actually leads us into the, your first book, which is Wheat Belly. So for those of you who haven't read this book yet, it is a must read in the food addiction world. It was a bestseller in 2011, literally translated into 44 different languages and has sold millions of copies across the world. It's got to be one of the best selling books of all in the food education world. So this is a book where Dr. Davis actually calls wheat frankenwheat and says that it's as toxic and as addictive as other drugs. And And we at Food Junkies, we already know about how toxic sugar is, but please tell us how toxic wheat is. And then, of course, we're going to ask about the addictive nature after that. So can we start with just the toxicity of wheat? Sure. We only have an hour. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the things to understand is that grains, like wheat, are seeds of grasses. And humans simply don't have the digestive enzymes to break down the proteins in the seeds of grasses. So, for instance, there's a protein called wheat germagglutinin. Farmers and agricultural geneticists have increased the content of wheat germagglutinin in wheat because it's a great pest-resistant compound. It resists molds, fungi, and insects. So they choose strains that have greater wheat germagglutinin, not recognizing that it is a potent bowel toxin for humans. It is completely indigestible. It goes in the mouth, goes through the GI tract, and then you poop it out intact. But in its course from mouth to toilet, it's extremely toxic to the human gastrointestinal tract. The gliadin protein, people say gluten, but it's actually gliadin within gluten, is only partially digestible. So if if you ate, let's say, an egg or some bacon, you break those proteins down in single amino acids. With the gliadin protein of wheat, you can only break it down to peptides or fragments, four or five amino acids long. Well, this these peptide fragments have opioid properties. They bind to the opioid receptors of the human brain. This, by the way, is from National Institutes of Health, NIH Science, not something I made up last Tuesday. <laughs> so binds the opioid receptors of the human brain and stimulates appetite. So modern wheat, especially the new forms of gliadin created essentially in a laboratory, are very potent appetite stimulants. That's why people say things like, you know, I had a big bowl of pasta. I was filled to bursting, but I'm still hungry. Uh That's the opioid appetite stimulating effect. So that's gliadin. Gliadin also, we know with good science, is the initiating factor in many, if not most, autoimmune diseases. That's Dr. Alessio Fasano's work when he was at University of Maryland, now at Harvard, and the gliadin protein initiates an opening of the intestinal barriers to cause autoimmune diseases, especially type 1 diabetes in children and rheumatoid arthritis. And then there's amylopectin A, carbohydrate unique to wheat and grains that is more digestible than table sugar. So if we're told eat more healthy whole grains, you're being told to eat foods that raise blood sugar and thereby insulin to very high levels. That's why people get fat eating wheat, appetite stimulant, gliadin-derived opioid peptides, coupled with the amylopectin A, insulin, and glucose-raising properties. And so wheat is this perfectly crafted obesogen food that makes you obese, as well as all the metabolic distortions associated. So a lot of the stuff that you're saying, like I said a minute ago, is stuff that we kind of attributed to sugar. So how are you able to ferret and distinguish out what belongs to what? And is it a compounding effect? The studies have been done. So those studies with small LDL, for instance, you can feed people wheat and see this happen. It's the amylopectin A. And so I I often say that Two slices of whole wheat bread raise blood sugar higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. So it's actually worse than sugar in some respects. Sugar doesn't have an opioid effect, but the grains have, of course, the grains have other toxic compounds. 
So the science is quite clear on this, actually. I didn't have to perform the science. The shocking thing was the science had already been done. It might be called a ketogenic diet. It might be called a low-carb diet. But these studies have already been done, and several more have been added to the literature that bear this out, that grains are not something that humans should consume. It was a mistake we made 12,000 years ago in a moment of desperation when humans turned to seeds of grasses, which is you know, t- kind of testimonial to how clever humans can be when we're hungry and starving, that they can isolate the little seeds of a grain, dry them, pulverize them, and then make porridge out of them. That's what humans first did 12,000 years ago. It took several thousand years later before the Egyptians figured out how to ferment beer and then bread. Right. It kind of begs us to go immediately into the addiction piece because there you go. Wheat becomes beer and bread and those are highly addictive. So like I said, we've been attributing that to the sugar component, but you've talked, you're very explicit about how there's an opioid effect in wheat and that causes an opioid withdrawal, right? As well as uh, the slight buzz that you get when you eat wheat. And it also has an addictive property, just like sugar. Can you You you'll see it? You'll see it in its most exaggerated effect in people who have a tendency towards binge eating, binge eating disorder and bulimia. These are, of course, people who have 24-hour day food obsessions. They're the people you find sitting in front of the refrigerator at 3 a.m. gorging, and then many of them running to the toilet, sticking their finger down their throat and and purging. These people will report dramatic relief, most of them, from the food obsessions. And as you point out, When you go wheat and grain-free, there is a withdrawal process experienced by about 50% of people, which is headache, nausea, depression, low moods, lasts about five days. And you can, by the way, provoke that same constellation of symptoms by giving somebody Narcan or Naltrexone, (laughs) the opioid blocking drug. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so getting back to some of the toxicity. So you're talking about that it has an autoimmune that we can affects us in terms of our autoimmune disorders. So it can make things like, again, this is something we, that we've attributed sugar to. So, and it's, it's not just that wheat as a more complex carb, I mean, it's fairly refined. It's not just that it's a carbohydrate that then breaks down into sugar. It's unique to the wheat itself, right? Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? So a lot of the problems with wheat, so the amylopectinase, the carbohydrate that has a lot of problems. Yes. But ironically, so, so amylopectinase, uniquely digestible because of the en- enzyme amylase in your saliva and stomach, but it's the proteins that are uniquely indigestible. And that explains a lot of the toxicity of these indigestible proteins, like the gliadin protein of the wheat germ gluten and some others. Yeah, so I, I really, I just want to bring that, make that really clear to our listeners, because it's not just the fact that it's a carbohydrate that's broken down, it's the protein aspect of it within the uh, wheat itself, the kernel of wheat. And I'm assuming that includes wheat germ as well, as not just wheat. That's right. So wheat germ is yes. unusually rich in wheat germ agglutinin. Uh, so okay. so very, if I take a milligram, which is just a speck, and feed that to a laboratory rat, its intestines are denuded. That is, the little finger-like villi that lie in the GI tract are destroyed. Now, the average American or Canadian who eats healthy whole grains gets about 18 to 19 milligrams 
of wheat germ gluten is very potent bowel toxin. And by the way, many of us, even though it's indigestible, a little bit of that wheat germ gluten gains entry into the bloodstream. So a lot of people have antibodies against wheat germ gluten, which tells us that very potent bowel toxin can sometimes gain entry into the body. The full effect of that phenomenon is not fully appreciated yet, but it is clearly inflammatory. Yeah. Okay. And just again, for people who are listening, celiac disease is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Absolutely. There has been a fourfold increase in celiac disease, likely due to the changes introduced into the gliadin protein. Exactly right. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I have never met a human, by the way, who does not have a problem in consuming wheat. They might not recognize that the cataracts they had are from largely from wheat consumption or the rosacea or the depression or the numerous other conditions. They often don't recognize it as being due to consumption of wheat and grains, but it likely is in many cases. Okay. And speaking of that, since you brought up the sort of mental aspect of things, how would wheat cause the mental fogginess and the uh, negativity, the the depression? What's the component there? It's probably a a variation in that opioid effect. So some people, many people get appetite stimulation. Some people get food obsessions. Other people like kids with autism or ADHD can trigger behavioral outbursts and reduce your attention span inattention. In people prone to depression, it can trigger depression. In people prone to bipolar illness, it can trigger the mania as well as the depression. In people with paranoid schizophrenia, it can provoke paranoia and auditory hallucinations. So in other words, the gliadin protein and the peptides that result from partial digestion are very potent actors on the human brain. Right. So it's not that necessarily that they cause it, but that they can potentiate what's already there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And addictive behavior also. That's yeah. why a lot of people will say things like, oh, I can't give up my bread. They I know. all know instinctively that there's a withdrawal oh. process. I hear people saying, I'll give up sugar, but I won't give up bread. So in your estimation, which would you say is, it, would it be equally as addictive as sugar or even more addictive? What would you say in terms of relationship to sugar? It's more addictive. You know, I, I hate to pick, say one, they're, they're both bad, you know, which is worse, Marlboros or Keratins. You know, they're both pretty bad. But, you know, if people recognize that, you have been given the key to magnificent health. I mean, really Great stuff happens when people banish this thing from their diet. And I go a little farther also. I also address the nutrients, common nutrients that are deficient in modern life. Not the diet, but modern life, like magnesium. You know, I'd love to say drink water from the lake, but you can't. Drink water from rivers or streams. You can't. It's got sewage and chemicals. So we have to, by necessity, filter our water, the city and or you do it. Well, water filtration removes all magnesium, and that's a big problem. So we replace magnesium. You know, we live in northern climates, many of us, and wear clothes in public, covering surface, a lot of the body surface area. We don't get enough vitamin D. And of course, we lose the capacity to activate vitamin D in the skin as we get older. So we take vitamin D. So we address four nutrients, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, iodine, and magnesium. And they all contribute to further unwinding insulin resistance. And so you know, insulin resistance, of course, is the process that leads to weight gain, obesity, type 2 diabetes, dementia, heart disease, hypertension. It's a, so that combination of getting rid of foods that raise blood sugar and insulin, provoke addictive behavior, et cetera, inflammation, 
coupled with simple supplements that synergize to reduce insulin resistance, that combination is extremely powerful. But would you tell your clients or your patients rather that you got to stop wheat and you would also just, just as clearly say you also have to stop sugar, right? Like even though like both of them are bad in your books. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, three days of, you know, if you had an all-inclusive vacation in um, Acapulco, yeah. <laughs> and had too many margaritas over three days, that's enough to give you irritable bowel syndrome. And that's a sugar issue. So okay. it doesn't take much to get irritable bowel syndrome or fungal overgrowth. Sugar is a big invitation for fungi. Fungi just love sugar. So an interesting aspect of fungal overgrowth in particular is sugar cravings, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, because it suggests that fungi somehow have evolved to produce some metabolite that affects your brain to seek out sugar to feed them. <laughs> wow, that sounds almost like a, a nightmare movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think about hearing stories recently of people who have fungus in their brains growing and the things that they have to do to, and I think it's cancer causing. I don't know, recently something in the news could be something completely unrelated, but definitely something that's emerging more and more. So I'm really interested, Dr. Davis, in talking about oxytocin deficiency syndrome. A lot of times clinically, so I am a licensed mental health clinician, addictions clinician, and I work primarily with food addiction. And what we see myself and our other co-host who isn't here with us today is also a clinician in the field. And we see a lot of times we can get clients to let go of the sugar, let go of the flours and grains, but then comes this volume piece of food. And when we've asked other guests about it, they're hypothesis has been something along the lines of there's an oxytocin serotonin, right? Like there is some releases when the stomach grows or enlarges from this volume of food. So I was really interested in what you had to say about oxytocin deficiency syndrome. Will you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, so despite all the success we had with the wheat belly strategies, not everybody went 100% of the way back to magnificent health. Some people would say, for instance, oh, I lost you know 68 pounds, but I have 40 more to go, <laughs> and I'm at a, stuck at a plateau. Or my diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is much better. My hemoglobin A1C dropped from 12.7%, which is a disastrous level, yeah. down to 5.8, but it's not perfect, 5.0% or less, or some other falling short of perfection. So that's why I looked at the microbiome and that's where I found incredible answers. One of the interesting things is because we've all been exposed to huge numbers of antibiotics, most people by age 40 have taken 30 courses of antibiotics, as well as food additives, preservatives like potassium sorbate disrupt the microbiome, emulsifying agents like polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose disrupt the human microbiome, stomach acid blocking drugs, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, statin cholesterol drugs, birth control pills, all disrupt the human microbiome. So we're in an ocean of factors that have disrupted the microbiome. One of the uh, casualties is we've lost numerous species in the human microbiome, the gastrointestinal microbiome, that did important things for us. And one of them is lactobacillus reuteri. 
R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after Dr. Gerhard Reuter, the German microbiologist who discovered it in human breast milk, 1962. Well, back then, he could find it easily. He found it in breast milk and stool. And since then, indigenous populations have been studied, and they all have Reuteri, as do chipmunks and squirrels and chickens and your dog. <laughs> but we've lost it. Almost all modern people have lost this very important species. And when restored, one of the things that Reuteri does it colonized the entire GI tract, by the way, very unique. And it sends a signal via the vagus nerve up to your brain to release the hormone oxytocin, as you point out, Molly. So when people have oxy, their water restored, they say things like, you know, I like my family better. I'm, I'm less annoyed by them. I like my coworkers better. I like my spouse better. I see other people's points of view more readily. But there's other effects. Ladies love it because the oxytocin is not just a hormone of love and empathy. It also stimulates dermal collagen. So they begin to lose their wrinkles within about eight weeks. There's also a restoration of youthful muscle and strength. You know, that we lose about 35% of our muscle and strength as we age. It comes back, especially combined with a little bit of strength training. Sleep is deeper. I'm a chronic insomniac. Watching TV, reading books at one till five in the morning for years. Now I sleep nine hours straight through the vivid dreams. Those of us who measure REM with these actigraphic devices like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or Aura Ring, there's about 20% lengthening of REM sleep. That is the deep restorative phase of sleep that helps you maintain mental health. There's an increase in libido and the erotic content of dreams. <laughs> Ladies get a preservation of bone density with a magnitude of effect on a par with a prescription drug with none of the costs or side effects. And relevant to your interest, Molly, a reduction in appetite, the so-called anorexigenic effect of oxytocin. So combine the loss of glide-and-drive opioid peptides as appetite stimulants with the so-called anorexigenic effect of oxytocin. And the oxytocin effect is largely for what's called hedonic eating, snacking. And you find that people are in complete utter complete control over their appetite. You can walk right past the Cinnabon or that plate full of donuts at the office and not give it a second thought. Because isn't it, isn't it usually that you eat something, the stretch receptors stimulate the vagus nerve, which stimulates the oxytocin. But if you've got this deficiency syndrome, that doesn't happen, right? So you just want to keep eating. <laughs> That's right. So it is an enormously freeing yeah. to have these effects and coast through some, most of us not on purpose, just gravitate towards eating one main meal and one small meal, and that's it. And not be hungry, not push the plate away, not feel like you're always obsessing about food, not being interested. Food tastes great, of course, but you're not ruled by appetite, impulse, or temptation. And so you said that things, it's not just the antibiotics, but you also said NSAIDs. So for people who don't know what that is, that's like your standard Advil, your standard medication that you take when you hurt your leg or something. For people with arthritis, they eat that stuff on a daily basis. You said antacids. So tons of people who are taking, because they have indigestion, we're essentially wiping out this essential bacteria in our gut. And how do we put that back in? Is that just like a good yogurt? So we have to talk about fermentation. So, yeah. of course, bacteria don't have sex. There's no mommy and daddy or male and female microbes. They just uh, so-called asexual reproduction. One microbe becomes two, two becomes four. So that's called, and they process various foods 
via process called fermentation. And so my favorite microbe is Lactobacillus rotari, but it's a good example. It doubles every three hours at human body temperature. Now, commercial yogurt production, not with rotari, they use kind of ho-hum species in commercial yogurt making, like Lactobacillus bulgaricus, Streptococcus thermophilus. No one eats store-bought yogurt and said, my health is transformed. <laughs> no one ever says that. But one of the things they do in commercial yogurt manufacturing is they ferment for four hours because commercial production is all about speed, right? Hasten production. So they ferment for four hours. Well, if a microbe like Rotori doubles every three hours, you got nothing. So when we make yogurt, it doesn't have to be yogurt, by the way, but yogurt's a very forgiving, easy vehicle. We ferment for 36 hours, which allows Rotori to double 12 times. Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to explain this to your listeners is, remember the kid's riddle? Which would you rather have, a million dollars or a penny that doubles every day for 30 days? Well, kids always say, I'll take the million dollars, right? not recognizing that the penny becomes over five and a half million dollars. Same phenomenon in bacteria. If you let it double only four hours, you got nothing. If you let it double for 36 hours, 12 doublings, you get about 250, 260 billion counts of bacteria. We perform flow cytometry in the yogurt and we get these big, big, big numbers. But you also see that the real increase in counts doesn't occur until about hour 33. So if your commercial production is only four hours long, you can see the problem here. So we're going to make it ourselves, get these big, big, big numbers. And you can do this with other microbes. I tell people, think of it like going to a restaurant. You walk into a nice restaurant, waitress hands you a, a menu, you don't freak out and say, there's no way I can order all these appetizers and main dishes. You pick and choose the dishes you want. You can do the same thing here. If you want smoother skin, deeper sleep, and restoration of youthful muscle, get rotarite. If you want a smaller waist beyond what you achieve with diet, Let's ferment lactobacillus gasseri. Let's say you want a reduction in knee pain from arthritis. Let's ferment bacillus coagulants. If you want a healthier child, healthier baby, fewer bowel movements, cut in half, less, fewer diaper changes, deeper sleep, sleeps of the night, grows better, grows faster, has a higher IQ, less asthma, less IBS, less likely to be obese as, as later on. Let's ferment bifidobacteria infantis. You can pick and choose. But one of the problems is because we've lost so many important species like those, unhealthy stool microbes, mostly stool species, have also proliferated. And in a shocking number of people, those unhealthy microbes have ascended up into the 24 feet of ilium, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach, small bowel, what the radiologists call fecalization because they see it on CAT scans with contrast as feces in the small bowel. It's not supposed, feces is not supposed to be in the small bowel, it's supposed to be in the colon. So they call it fecalization, but it represents the ascendance, the climbing of unhealthy microbes into the small bowel. Now there's research from Belgium, 2007, Dr. Patrice Canny. You know, many of us have suspected for years that there's a process called gut leak, but there was not good science behind it. Well, now there is good science. And that group showed that microbes in the GI tract export their effects. Because when you have trillions of microbes turning over in minutes to hours, they don't live very long. Some of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream. And this is called endotoxemia. But it's now clear how and why microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as rosacea or psoriasis in the skin or as depression or Alzheimer's dementia, or Parkinson's disease in the brain, or as joint and muscle aches of fibromyalgia, 
or restless leg syndrome. So, so much of human health has to be reconsidered, redefined in light of this finding of endotoxemia from bowel microbes. So, so your book, Supergut, we've kind of moved into your book. So the first part of that book is how to get rid of all those endotoxins or those bugs, those that fecalization, I guess. And then the next is how to replace it with the good stuff. So for those of you who are very interested in this area, please get that book, which just came out like this year, like just like a few months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. February. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. How does wheat fit into that, by the way? So is wheat the thing that has fed the negative bacteria? You know, we don't have a lot of research on the effects of wheat, specifically on the microbiome. Yeah. But the amylopectin A does indeed have an impact by cultivating unhealthy species. The inflammation, you know, inflammation in and of itself, yeah. intestinal inflammation, changes the microbiome. So wheat germagglutinin and gliadin-derived peptides are also very toxic. So they do introduce unhealthy changes into the microbiome. So that, that's a good place to start. But taking it further with now, one of the things I think I stumbled on, this is preliminary, it's anecdotal, so we don't have a clinical trial yet to prove it. So people with this problem, 30 feet of of microbes exporting their effects to other parts of the body that some people call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Well, by the way, there's a new consumer device, the AIR device, A-I-R-E, that helps you identify this. People don't have to buy this device, but it's one of the options people have to identify. It's a device that maps out where microbes are in your GI tract. This is like having, you know, finger stick blood glucose in a diabetic. It's a game changer for intestinal health, specifically SIBO. This is the old device. The new device is black. This is white. The new device, it's, mine is in the kitchen. <laughs> it measures hydrogen gas and methane. Two gases produced by microbes, not by you. So you can use this device, but you have choices. If you identify this process with the air device or formal H2 testing in a lab, or you have the tell, what I call telltale signs, fat malabsorption. It's a very confident sign that you have SIBO bacteria in your small bowel. Another one is food intolerances to FODMAPs, to nightshades, to histamine-causing containing foods, asorbitol, fructose, fruit, legumes, all these food intolerances, many of them, most of them are intolerances caused by SIBO. So avoiding the food may make you feel a little better, but you still got the disrupted microbiome to deal with. There are conditions synonymous with this process, like fibromyalgia, virtually guaranteed you have SIBO, autoimmune diseases, neurodegenerative disorders, restless leg syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. If you have any of these conditions, it's highly likely fatty liver, highly likely you have this process called SIBO. What is SIBO again? Sorry, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, 30 feet, trillions of microbes. Basically that fecalization that you were talking about. Fecalization, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What a word, what a word. Okay, so now you recognize that you have SIBO and you want to get rid of that. So how do you get rid of it? And where do you get this good stuff that you were talking about? Like that buffet of all those different good bacteria. Where do I buy that? So there's not one source. I list them all in super gut. It depends on which microbe you're looking for. So if you want, for instance, the gasseri, I'm sorry, the rotari. Yeah. Now here's something your listeners should know. When you deal with microbes, you often have to pay attention to strain to illustrate. If so, you've got E. coli, I've got E. coli, Molly's got E. coli, but what if you ate lettuce? contaminated by cow manure with E. coli. Well, you can die of that E. coli. Same species, E. coli, different strain. Now, the strain I initially used 
for Roterite, for all these effects, came from a company, a Swedish company called BioGaia, and the product is called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S, made for infants. Because when babies get this, they have less colic, less regurgitation of breast milk or formula, and so it's a little less fussy, period. Well, an MIT group from between 2013-2017 published their mouse evidence where restoring rotorite to these mice generated all those effects. More rapid healing, more mating, thicker hair, restoration, youthful muscle, all that stuff was seen. And then some of it's been since corroborating humans. We have several clinical trials ongoing to further corroborate, but we get that strain. Now, here's my suspicion though. I've made the yogurt. It doesn't have to be yogurt, by the way. It could be coconut milk. I use yogurt because it's so friendly and forgiving to ferment. I've made the Rotorai yogurt with eight different strains, the BioGaia strains and other strains. And I think that it's not unique to the BioGaia strains. I believe every yogurt I've made with Broderite, I've experienced. Now, that's anecdotal. We have a mouse trial set up. We're going to compare five strains to see if any is better at provoking oxytocin. Over time, this gets very costly. Over time, we'll probably do 20 or 30 and see if there's, we want to optimize this effect. I may have a strain that's really good at the oxytocin effect. So, but that's something we want to prove first. Is that something that you can like purchase online or is it something mm-hmm. you do yourself? You purchase it online. It's like $24, something like that. Then you uh, just make your own yogurt with it. Yeah. Now there's a specific method. We have to crush the tablets. The first batch is not that nice. It separates in the curds and whey. By the way, only buy it once because you can make subsequent batches with a little of the prior batch yeah. this is true for all fermentation. Yeah. Now here's another anecdote. We will address this in a clinical trial. But, you know, if you have SIBO, 30 feet, trillions of microbes, endotoxemia, right, affecting the whole body, well, you can take an antibiotic, which I'm reluctant to suggest because antibiotics cause a lot of the problems in the first place. But you can take an antibiotic called rifaximin or zyfaxin, 50% efficacy. You could take, there are two herbal antibiotic regimens that I was skeptical about, but now have some proof of efficacy, the candibactin regimen and the fc cell dysbiocide regimen. And that's what we did for a couple of years. They do work pretty well, maybe 60 to 70% efficacy. But here's a question I asked. If you've got SIBO, 30 feet, proliferated unhealthy stool microbes, what if you take a commercial probiotic? Will it go away? Hmm. No. <laughs> you might have a little less bloating maybe a little less diarrhea, but you still have SIBO. So I asked different questions. I asked, what if we chose species that colonize the upper GI tract? That's where SIBO occurs. And let's choose species that produce what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics effective against the species of SIBO. So I picked a strain of lactobacillus gasseri because it colonized the upper GI tract and produces up to seven bactericins. It's a bactericin powerhouse. I picked my favorite microbe, Lactobacillus rotari, produces up to four bactericins, colonized the upper GI tract. And I threw in some bacillus coagulants, the GBI 36 or 86 strain, because it's been shown to reverse irritable bowel syndrome in many people, which is virtually synonymous with SIBO. And it produces one bactericin. We co-ferment it all together, 36 hours, right? And we consume a half cup a day. Now, this is preliminary and anecdotal, but so far of about 30 people have done this, 90% test negative on the air device for hydrogen gas. So I'm hopeful this holds true. If it continues to be true, 
We'll perform the clinical trial, not, not as yogurt, of course. We'll have to encapsulate into a probiotic to, and then see if it normalizes breath H2 in a formal setting. Okay. Wow. So for people who are listening, I mean, it, this is more than just going down to your local health food store and getting the, you know, 50 million probiotic thing. This is, get the book, a super gut. I wanted to ask you, I don't want to run out of time. I wanted to ask you about your book, Undoctored, and your sort of approach with that book. Now, I have to tell you quite honestly, being a physician myself, I did feel a little bit offended occasionally when I read this. So I wanted to, if you don't mind, with all due respect, uh, just a couple of challenging questions. Your premise in the book is, doctors have been messing us up for years with these crazy tests like the cholesterol and our understanding of insulin and and whatnot. And so here's the approach that the consumer, the patient has to learn themselves, learn how to sort of self-educate on the tests themselves and on the treatment, kind of like the super gut approach. But I wanted to ask you, especially in light of this whole fake news thing that's happened in the last couple of years with COVID, everywhere you look, you know, try bleach, try this, try that. How is the consumer expected to be able to ferret out all this information, which is no longer at all reliable. It's not even just somebody trying to sell you something. It's overt falsehood. How do you respond to that? Because it seems to me when I was reading that book, there was the expectation that the consumer was intelligent, well-read, and well-intentioned, which I think everybody wants to be, but living in an environment that is fairly neutral, but it's not. So how do you respond to that? You know, it's become, so you know this, Dr. Vera, that what you get from most doctors and hospitals and healthcare yeah. systems is, is not health. It's no. pharmaceuticals and procedures, right? I totally get I get you with yeah. that one for sure. I see what true. I'm not saying is diagnose your own disease. That I'm not saying that at all. And I'm also not saying here's an armamentarium for all disease. Of course, that's ridiculous. What I saw happen came from the wheat belly experience. People said yeah. this. I went to the doctor and I said, I'm going to do the wheat belly lifestyle. And the doctor says, that's stupid. Take Lipitor because it's going to give you a heart attack. We see the same thing in the sugar world. (laughs) So the patient says, "Uh, I'm going to do it anyway. And the patient loses 43 pounds, their type 2 diabetes is history, their blood pressure is normalized, their skin rash, et cetera. And what I saw happen was people were accomplishing this in spite of the doctor. And so what I saw was, we're not trying to diagnose conditions. We're not trying to tell you, you know, find supplement X to treat this, none of that. What we're doing is follow this basic menu of strategies, wheat, grain, and sugar elimination, the four nutrients that address insulin resistance and inflammation, and then address the microbiome. And more often than not, regardless of the label you were that was put on you, whether it was called rheumatoid arthritis or depression or migraine headaches or prediabetes, or hypertension, or coronary disease, or ulcerative colitis, or Crohn's disease, or psoriasis, or separate, more likely that it'll go away. So we're not diagnosing, we're not treating, we're addressing common factors that allow these diseases to emerge in the first place. And it is magnificently effective to do it that way. Okay, so the wheat sugar elimination, the four, what were they again? That was magnesium, vitamin Vitamin D, D, omega-3 fatty acids, and iodine. Okay, uh, so we got, we got that. And then there's this, the, the whole gut microbiome of which you were talking about, getting rid of the uh, SIBO. Sorry, is that what SIBO? SIBO, sorry. And then replacing it with the uh, good probiotics. You know, one useful lesson is, let's look at the Yanomami 
in the Brazilian rainforest or the Matsas in the highlands of Peru or the Maasai in Kenya or the Hadza in Tanzania or the Mori in New Zealand or the population in the highlands of New Guinea or the Malawi in East Africa. These are all indigenous populations who hunt and gather, of course. They have no colon cancer, no type 2 diabetes, no obesity, no hypertension, no fatty liver, no ulcerative colitis, no hemorrhoids, no constipation, <laughs> no coronary disease. They have other problems. They, they've got dengue fever and malaria and nematode infestations. So they have infection and injury, of course. But they have virtually none of the diseases of civilization. I think that's an important lesson to take. They also all have roiterite. And so there's a lot of lessons we can take from those indigenous populations, including that the diseases that afflict us at epidemic proportions are not even present in those populations. All right. So any role for surgery medications in your clinics now? Almost none. You know, if you're in a car accident, you, you break your hip. Well, you might need surgery, right? So injury, of course, infections. You come back from Costa Rica with dengue fever, you're going to need some, you know, antibacterial or antimicrobial. So there is a role in the time and place for conventional health care. There's genetically determined diseases, of course, where the healthcare system can be useful. I'm talking more about the type 2 diabetic, yeah. the overweight, the obese, the hypertensives, the coronary disease, the dementia. These are all conditions that are readily, we're not going to treat them. We're going to address the factors that allow those conditions to emerge in the first place. Yeah, right. Okay. So I, I get that. So it's, it's a way of eliminating as opposed to adding something. You're eliminating all of the dangers. The person's natural health will be restored as opposed to having to fix something. Um, yeah. People will say when they don't understand, they say, oh, you're so irresponsible telling people to treat themselves. Diagnosing. That's, that's not what this is about. No one here is diagnosing and treating themselves. Yeah, no, I understand, the I understand what you're saying now. I mean, I mean, the other thing is, is that you had in there in the undoctored one that, you know, tests that people could refute or try to interpret themselves. But, you know, doctors are the ones who are gatekeepers to those tests. But it sounds to me like you're saying you don't even need those tests because they won't be necessary because the condition will be resolved. You know, it is interesting because I did this in practice for many years. We do track metabolic markers and it just supports when you see blood sugar plummet, when you see hemoglobin A1C drop, when you see small LDL particles drop to zero, you see triglycerides drop from 300 to 42, or yeah. that's about what, about like 0. 0.6, 0.7 micromolar. When you see all these markers, improve, it just bolsters your confidence in what you're doing is right. I can tell you, you don't have to do that, but it can be helpful. So is your food plan that you would recommend, you did say something about low-carbon keto, so I'm assuming that you're pro those meal plans. Is my assumption correct? And what do you think about the vegan food plan, especially somebody who's trying not to eat processed foods? They're eating plant-based, but they're avoiding you know, the processed food angle. So I think low-carb is fine because two-thirds of Canada and the U.S. have uh, two-thirds of the population have insulin resistance. A low-carb approach is clearly more effective than a low-fat approach. And the low-fat argument has never had good evidence behind it. But the big mistake many people are making, especially in the more extreme versions of the diets, like ketogenic or carnivorous, is not addressing bowel flora. One of the phenomena that emerges when you fail to feed your bacteria, they need to be fed because they eat stuff that's different from the stuff you want to eat. So they eat fibers and polysaccharides and polyphenols. Well, when you fail to do that because you're eating meat and like leafy vegetables, there's an odd phenomenon. Healthy microbes are suppressed or disappear, 
And there are species like acromancia that because they have the added capacity to consume human mucus. So acromancia's full name, of course, is acromancia mucinophila, mucus lover. So when deprived of prebiotic fibers and related things, acromancia turns the human mucus, which is very destructive. It causes colitis, intestinal inflammation. It increases endotoxemia. That's why people who do those diets who don't pay attention to bowel floor and prebiotic fibers, say things like this. Oh, I've lost 47 pounds. I feel great. My waist has shrunk. My blood pressure dropped. My triglycerides drop. And then a year, 18 months in, they say, I'm constipated now. And my triglycerides going back up. I've regained the weight. Um, having some stomach problem, they developed inflammation and endotoxemia from the diet. So the diet's fine, but you got to pay attention to what you're doing with your bowel flora. And that has to come from veggies, right? It has to come from plant matter. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here's something we haven't talked about. That is, you know, one of the things we're seeing, of course, across the board are the underappreciated benefits of collagen and hyaluronic acid. So, you know, if Molly was a a wild living human, not a nice modern woman, she would go out and kill something (laughs) and drag it back to the camp, eat the stomach and intestines, often raw, roast the carcass over a fire, eat the brain, heart stomach and those organs at organ meat Mm -hmm. and she would get a diet rich in collagen and hyaluronic acid because it's clear when we store those nutrients that even the usda says oh they're not necessary you restore it and better skin slowed skin aging joint health improves dramatically you can regrow cartilage gradually aortic health and arterial health dramatically improve because aorta is very collagen rich of course And there's even emerging evidence that it reduces blood pressure and slows down cognitive impairment. So collagen, hyaluronic acid, very, very important. Where do you get it from? Animal organs. So if you're a vegetarian or vegan, you are committed to a diet that accelerates aging, skin aging, joint aging, arterial aging, not to mention omega-3 fatty acids, B12, iron, zinc, and all the other things absent from a vegan vegetarian diet. So it is unnatural. There's no human adapted to a vegetarian way of eating. There's no wild living vegetarian uh, group of people. They do it in India. 30% of people there are vegetarian for religious reasons, and they have big problems with learning impairment and growth impairment in children. So people get mad at me. Sorry, this is not my opinion. This is a fact. Yeah. That people who don't get those nutrients are consigned to a, a problems in their health. So, and there is no evidence, by the way, that vegetarianism is healthier. That is not, it's a misinterpretation of the science. Okay. So in terms of an ideal plan, would it be a low carb, but not strict keto and fermented foods? Would that be an ideal plan? Yeah, it would be the diet that, you know, Molly would eat if she killed something, <laughs> dug in the dirt for roots and tubers, gathered berries and nuts, Right. That's it would be mimicking you know, that lifestyle has been coded into your genetics over the three million years of human evolution. It's only when the big food, predatory food practices, and dietary guidelines got in the way and told us, "Oh, don't do that anymore. Don't eat organs. Cut your fat. Cut your saturated fat. Eat more healthy whole grains." And that's and then of course predatory practices, exploitative practices by the food industry have all conspired to cause this massive mess we now have in human health. Okay. So in the short a bit of time that we have left, I do want to ask you, a lot of what you're saying is quite, you know, in the face of regular science, not sorry, not regular science, regular medical advice. So have you had any pushback? You must have somewhere along the line. When Wheat Belly came out, you must have had people throwing it, throwing it back at you. So what did they say? And what did you say back? Well, I would point out that Dr. Vera is an exception. 
because she's interested in nutrition and health. Mm-hmm. And sad to say, you know this, most of our colleagues don't give a damn because their interest is the best. What's the new defibrillator they can put in? Mm-hmm. What's the new drug? What's the new procedure? What's the new revenue producing activity? And there are very few of our, sad to say, it shouldn't be this way. And it's gotten worse over the years. Doctors should be experts in nutrition, nutrients, and the microbiome. And then maybe think about replacing your hip or putting a stent in or doing carotid endotorectomy. Uh, But that's not the way it goes, right? There's too much of, and this is really bad in the US, where healthcare is a profit-driven activity. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. So shockingly, and you know this also, most of our colleagues, the only thing they know about nutrition is what's in guidelines. Absolutely. And it's not just profit-driven, it's litigation-driven, because if I don't do what my colleagues are doing, somebody could sue me. Like, there's that piece, too. Let's not forget that. Yep, good point. Yeah, But has there been any pushback against you? Like, you are standing in the face of, you know, big food. So there has been from people who don't understand the science, people who say things like, well, of course we have to eat whole grains. The guidelines say so. (laughs) And by the way, dietary guidelines are largely crafted by industry. You know, when the USDA, for instance, or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is going to redo their dietary guidelines, they open the conversation to the public. But does Molly or Dr. Vera or me show up at the two weeks in Bethesda, Maryland? No. No. But representatives for Nabisco, General Mills, Quaker Oats, et cetera, show up and they influence the composition. So we can blame ourselves, but you know what? We have things to do. We're not on salary to lobby for the the interests of of big food. And so because dietary guidelines have been such a unmitigated disaster, I don't even try to tell people. I just ignore them. Guidelines are absurd. You look at the science, use some logic, use some. And when people hear the logic, I think, and the rationale, they start to understand that what they've been told was this Kool-Aid version of, of health and nutrition. Yeah. Okay. So before Molly closes this off, I just want to ask you one more time, where do you get those strains? Like, like how <laughs> do you have a, a website that leads people? I mean, the book is really helpful in terms of setting it all up, how to make the yogurt and how to, you know, but to get the start. There's no one place, unfortunately. So in the uh, super gut, as well as in my membership website, uh, uh, drdavisinfinitehealth.com, there's a membership site. We also list it there. So like the rotari we get from the gastrous product, we get lactobacillus gasseri. We used to get it from South Korea, the people who commercialize, but the um, Mercola people have picked it up. And so we can get it from them. The Bifidobacterium infantis we get from a company called Avivo. So there's no one place we get all this stuff. That's the hassle of it. You may have to a little bit of effort, a little bit of a few dollars to get the initial microbes, but then you have, never have to buy it again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to point out that I did take your advice. I happened to be listening to your podcast. And of course, because I'm interested in the oxytocin and all of that, I did buy the probiotics and I made my own yogurt and I'm actually only like on day seven or something of, (laughs) of having, and it's, I mean, I can't buy yogurt that actually is as good as what I made at home, which is really kind of amazing. So I just want to say thank you for putting that out there. And it's It's a lot of fun, isn't it? So yeah, and it's fun. It's fun. I know my children were like, what are you making? I'm like, let's make this together. Yeah. And they even tried it out. So it's a little, it's a little tart for them, but that's okay. So a couple things just to wrap up. What's next 
for you. Yeah. We're validating a lot of these things, exploring ways to make it more effective. Mm-hmm. That is, give people tools, not just to you know be non-diabetic, lose a few pounds, but to really regain magnificent health. I really think what we're doing, think about the effects of just rotary alone. That's one microbe. I know. Smoother skin, acceleration of healing, preservation of bone density, restoration of youthful muscle and strength, deeper sleep, increased libido, erotic dreams. I think we're turning the clock back 10 or 20 years. And I think we're going to get a lot smarter about that process as time goes on. And where can our listeners find you? Well, Super Gut Book, of course, available everywhere, as well as my new website, drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Okay. And obviously you have a podcast, Defiant Health Radio, which I think is really nice. I mean, your episodes are like nice and short and to the point and you're very easy to listen to. And I think you're a great teacher. So I think everybody should go there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then one final question. We have a signature question we ask everybody and I know we're at time. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about sugar, wheat, the gut biome, what would you say? I would tell me to eat the way I eat now because it ruined my health for many years in crazy ways, incurable fatigue, skin rashes. I became a type two diabetic. I'm not anymore. All kinds of problems. I wish I'd known that 40 years ago. Wow. Well, thank you so much. You've really blown me away. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you guys. And sorry you got insulted by undoctor Vera. <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Take thank care, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.